Welcome, Valcommon, bienvenue to Down the Line, an episode-by-episode -episode review of the best TV drama series ever made, Secret Army. Hello, I'm Andy, and I'm going to check on all the safe houses north of Paris. And I'm AJ, and uh, I can barely hear you over the sound of these ticking clocks. They're really loud. <laughs> How are you today? I'm good. I'm lying, but I'm good. Uh, well... As Andy and I have already uh, talked about before we hit record, I'm on a like 110%. I'm absolutely manic today, but that's yeah. good for me. <laughs> and, I've, and I've had a two-day migraine, but it, it's going away. But yeah, I'm having clusters of migraines, apparently, they're called. Not good. Migraines need to do one. No one needs them <laughs> in their life. But this is how I push through. I, I, it's more important to me to record about Secret Army than it is to listen to... Um, the show my... must go on. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so today we're looking at Series 1, Episode 9, Too Near Home, that was written by Robert Barr and directed by Victor Rotellis. Which is his third of 11 episodes. Gosh! And uh, I did a quick, a quick look-see... And do you know the breakdown of how many episodes he did in each series of Secret Army? I know he did four in the first series. Wrong. Six. We do like Generation, not not Generation Game, <laughs> uh, card, Bruce's Cards Are Right or whatever your, it's called. Your cards, like... right. Bruce's Cards Are Right. Hiya. <laughs> That's what it should have been called. <laughs> Bruce's Cards. I'm, I'm going to call it Bruce's Cards Are Right from now on. What, was it more than six? No, no, you said four, so I was like... Go higher, go higher. It's six. But then, pleasingly, he has two in series two and three in series three, so it's easy to remember those. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Mm. Yes. So, we've talked a lot about Victor's Rotellis before. He directed episode two, Sergeant on the Run, where it was really obvious that he was directing because he has these little directorial flourishes and moments, lots of local colour. Often, though, sometimes things that are inconsequential to the plot. And also, he directed <laughs> Child's Play, which is not the one about the airman and the child. <laughs> we made this point quite clearly now. Um, uh, but that was curiously absent of his usual style and flair, wasn't it? So it kind of... Yeah, the dial had been toned, toned yeah. down. But here, he's back on form, Victor. He's very much obviously directing. He's not quite on the same scale as Sergeant on the Run, but he's... This is like, next one down, next one yeah. down. Yeah, so we will be mentioning those aspects as we as we continue to review the episode yes but that's why if anyone was wondering we were mentioning ticking clocks yes there was context it wasn't just in, in, inconsequential nonsense so do you want to hear about the writer robert barr yes please i don't know very much about him so please impart your knowledge I think he's one of the more interesting scriptwriters of series one. Not to say the others weren't, but it was just more that he'd had quite a career and he was quite celebrated. So I think it was a bit of a coup that he agreed to write for Secret Army. During the war, he shadowed Dwight D. Eisenhower from D-Day to the end of the war um, as a reporter. So he was, he was really in on the scene at the end of the war. So, um, and that led him on to produce documentaries for the BBC... Um, including the very first BBC documentary. That's quite a... Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, Germany Under Control in 1946. He then went on to do a landmark version of The Time Machine in 1949, which just shows how old that is. I mean, I know it's H.G. Wells, but it's just the idea of a TV programme from 1949, which I imagine was just, as, was just live theatre, effectively. 
I'd love to have seen how they pulled off the time machine live, but hey. Um, he thereafter was a drama documentary pioneer and yeah, so many different drama documentaries. He kind of set that as a standard way of telling. He kind of um, effectively created that as a mode of television. And then he indulged his interest in, in spies, in espionage through the series Spycatcher. The leading man of Spycatcher was Bernard Archard, who Doctor Who fans will know is the possessed Marcus Scarman in Pyramids of Mars. But Spycatcher ran from 59 to 61, obligatory Doctor Who reference. I'm just picking out a few of his credits. The next one I think is important is the first time he worked for Glaister, for Jerry Glaister, and that was the Hebridean thriller The Dark Island. That sounds really intriguing. What's, uh, what's that? Yeah, I think it's a six-part series set in the Outer Hebrides. I don't think there's any sort of, like, alien or, or sort of UFO angle. It's literally just a thriller about someone on the run, I oh, think. Oh, OK. But yeah, it sounds really intriguing. Hmm. Yeah. He also worked on Moonstrike, which Jerry Glaister talked about as one as as one of the reasons why he was inspired to create Secret Army because it was an attempt at this sort of stuff before before they had the ability and the money to do a, a World War II drama series well. The BBC, so Moonstrike's kind of the, one of the first examples. And that's from about sixty three, and he wrote for that. Then he had a whole swathe of time when he wrote for police series, Z Cars, Softly Softly its successor, Softly Softly Task Force, and finally Barlow at Large. He created the drama series Gazette, which went on to become Hadley, and that ran from 1969 to 76. By the time people were watching Secret Army, they would have remembered a series called Spy Trap with Paul Daneman, another spy thriller that ran for four years, 72 to 75. Just before Secret Army, he'd worked for Jerry Glaister on a series called The McKinnons, a Scottish drama. I'm not guessing that it's a Scottish drama. I know it is, but I don't remember any other detail about it. I like how you like, I just want to clarify for the listener that I'm not just looking at the name and saying that it is something. <laughs> exactly. I have a bit more knowledge than that, but not much. I know that Hazel McBride is in an episode of The McKinnons, ah. and I think that's maybe why she was cast in... Um, Secret Army. Yeah. But then Glacier says, well, I've got this new war series. Do you want to hop on board? But clearly he didn't have a lot of time because he only writes one episode of series one, which is the one we're covering today, Too Near Home. But boy, when you look at the other episodes that he wrote, they're strong entries in Secret Army. Yeah. Also Lucky Peace, A Matter of Life and Death and Prisoner from series three. So, yeah. What a lineup. At some point when we do a review or end of season, what have you? We'll have to look at the writers and see yeah. like who's got like a really good consistent lineup or yeah, yeah, um, and see see who if we come up with some kind of fun scoring system amongst ourselves, we could see who's got a, you know like good episode lineup. I'm sure that, I'm sure that's within our powers, isn't it? You know what's coming? Another spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I live for AJ spreadsheets. <laughs> I live for ruining your life with my spreadsheets. <laughs> Listeners won't know this, but yeah, I'm just like, Andy, I've got a spreadsheet for this. Yes. I'm like, no. I'm triggered by them, by Drive, by Google Drive. <laughs> yes. I think it's time that we had a brief plot summary. I think you're right. So, too near home. While in Sonly, Lisa learns of resistance troubles in Paris. She decides to visit a patriot called Julius to find out more. However, her visit coincides with the arrival of Inspector Landre, who refuses to believe Lisa's story that she has nothing to do with the resistance. 
Meanwhile, in Brussels, Lisa's uncle Gaston has been called in for questioning by Kessler himself. So, um, we return to some filming locations we've previously seen um, in this episode. Yes, we do. We return to the Place de Petit Sablon. Eagle-eyed viewers will be able to see just at the back of the shot, there's the, the topiary, the green bushes, and slight glimpse of statue. The bit where the sergeant on the run, where the guy ran past the statues with his crutches, he didn't run, he ambled more. But that's in the scene in which Natalie is observing two rich people in a, a, a old vintage car and there's an old man eating bread. Yes, it's one of those Victor scenes that we don't quite understand why it's there. But, um, uh, so yes, that's that's filmed just off the Place de Petite Sablon, very near the main road, because um, I've been there. <laughs> and then we have Victor's Vitalis also returning to Covent Garden, which was closed at the time for refurbishment, hence its access, as a, um, hence access for it as a film location. And the place where I'm sure a lot of you have been before, the bit where Julius runs and is shot is actually the exact spot where all the street performers are um, in Covent Garden. So at the back of the market where everyone gathers and sees all that street theatre and all that stuff, that is exactly the point at which Lisa was arrested. And I know that the cycle shop, that the cycle shop used to be the West Cornwall Pasty Company. I don't know what it is now. Yeah, I keep forgetting that that is you know, one of the most easily accessible filming locations. Yes. And I need to go down and check Yeah. next time I'm in London. I think it really does feel like a foreign country. It's interesting. Although I will say that in all of the um, BBC stills of Lisa and Londre, that you can see clearly in the background a bank, and it's National Westminster Bank. And whenever I'm watching Two Near Home, I always know that Nat West Bank's just out of shot, and it always makes me laugh. <laughs> Yeah, this was a location that was, they decided this is such a good location. We are going to take loads of photos of Lisa here. So all of the shots that, um, a lot of the shots that were used to promote the series were, were photographed here, including the shot for the Secret Army novelization, the prequel story. Yeah. Good facts. You'll notice the same grey gloves. I don't know why, they've really caught my attention. So whenever they're on screen now, I'm like, there's the woolly gloves. Exactly, yes. When did the studio, studio recording... Yes, <laughs> yes thank well anticipated. <laughs> the studio recording took place on the 19th of July, 77. Sometimes they, these studio dates and broadcast dates have been quite close. Here we've got quite a gap. 19th of July, this was first broadcast in the, on the 2nd of November. So I think you should kick off with your thoughts on To Near Home. For me, this is my favourite episode of... I'm just having a think. Is it my favourite episode of Series 1? Yes, it is. It's my favourite episode of Series 1 so far. I really like it. It is very suspenseful and tense. And I just love the way everything builds up in the episode. And the end has emotionally traumatised me for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I need Fair. a lot of hugs. Whenever I think about the... Uh, I thank you. Uh, the listener can't see this, but uh, Andy is giving me some virtual hugs over Zoom. On Twitter, I did a... count Not, not a countdown, but like my top five emotional moments of Secret Army and the scenes of Maria Charles at the end of this episode uh, made the cut because they're just so impactful. And I just... Mm. They make me cry every time. I just can't even sit through them anymore. They're just so... 
so heartbreaking for me. So um, yeah, it's that's my top top level summary. Ah. For me, this episode feels like it is firing on more cylinders than some of the other earlier episodes of series one. In that way, it's kind of similar to, to Second Chance. Um, it's it's got a lot going on. It's got a really good pace. And there's a lot happens in it. There's a lot of really good performances and, as you said, some really difficult um, emotions. But I also think there are some uneven moments and some bits that I just don't quite believe. And I'd like to dig into those during this review. And I do agree with that. But I think the reason I'm not coming down so harshly on that is because as we've done this rewatch and looked at each episode so far, a lot of the episodes have bits that don't quite work or when we start to question the plot it kind of falls apart a bit so yeah I'm learning to be more forgiving of it now yeah and I think that's an important point you make I realize how I'm too close to the series sometimes and how I need to give it more of a free pass because I actually adore this series I love it it's a part of who I am so whenever we're critiquing I think it's important for you know anyone listening to us to recognize that we we love this series but it it doesn't mean when we're going to kind of ignore things that we think could have been better. But yeah, as you say, sometimes we'll ignore stuff we don't like. Sometimes we'll point it out. <laughs> and I think as well, it can come across as nitpicking, you know, well, why did he say that? And why, why didn't they do this? But actually, for me, it's more about questioning what impact that will have like late, on later stories or for the characters. Yeah. And so... It's for its own good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm critiquing for its own. No, I'm just no, no, I know what you're saying, though, yeah. And that those are the kind of conversations that you can only have with someone like yourself because a lot of people in... Well, in my life, no one watches it because <laughs> we, were, we were all born after it was on. But when I meet... When I can sit down with you, we can look at this and you'll know what I'm talking yeah. about and what impact this will have. And, and that's what's really exciting for me. So, yeah, to echo that, it's not that I'm just being really harsh on the show. It's... It's that excitement of digging into it and looking at the consequences and things. Yeah. And linking it all together. Is there any consequences or, you know, jog my memory, is it mentioned again or not? Or, sure. you know, it's that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's any surprise that this episode was the one that Glacier decided to get Robert Barr in for. I imagine he was given some sort of brief, this is the episode where Lisa's in prison and Lifeline's in terrible danger and Gaston's being questioned and all that, right around that. Because, as we've said before, Glacier wanted... Um, this Hitchcockian vibe, full of suspense, and he knew that Barr was a writer of spy thrillers and spy drama. And you can see that he's right for this this piece. Mm. Um, and he has a lot of experience in the area. So I could understand that, why he was assigned to near home. Now let's see what we have. We have uh, one return ticket from Saint-Lys to Brussels, an identity document in the name of Lisa Colbert, and the ration book, and a travel permit in the same name, and the pretty girl called Lisa Colbert. Is that all you wanted to know? I wish I could say yes, mademoiselle. Unfortunately, everything you have told me has still to be checked. Why? Because today you were seen with a terrorist, mademoiselle. But it was a mistake. I don't know him. Life is full of mistakes, mademoiselle. Chassard? Please, you don't understand. But I... I do understand, mademoiselle. I'm impressed by your pretty face, but not by your story. So you will cancel your trip to Paris and your return to Brussels. Have I taken to the prison at Pontoise? I think it, it feels like an exciting episode for me because, as we discussed in previous episodes, a lot of them were 
were standalone ones or were focusing on non-lifeline characters, which were interesting as standalones, but we said repeatedly that we wanted more focus on the main characters. And it's really nice to get that episode and you dig in and it's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really exciting. It's like a really exciting kind of midway point. Yes, yeah, and... Where it, the action just gets going and, yeah, there's moments in it like where it just... You don't see Gaston being arrested. You just see Kessler at the desk and you don't know who he's talking to and then you see it's Gaston and you're like, shit. <laughs> yes, the fact that Gaston's there in front of him without any lead-up is a big shock. And, it's, and, and as a viewer, you're kind of like sitting up then and taking notice. You're like, oh, you're going in. Yeah. Like, yeah. yes. I also think um, this is, again, showing that Secret Army is moving away from its kind of initial conception, which we've discussed before as being more of an anthology series with episodes like Growing Up and Sergeant on the Run, which aren't so much about the regulars. But here it's like, no, we're investing in the regulars now. We really do care about these people and what happens to them. And we're going to follow them in more detail than other people. And it's the right choice. And I think this is another great example of, uh, of a focus that is more interesting because we care about people. Now, tell me all about it. There isn't very much to tell, Sophie. We've been very unlucky this past month. We've lost some of our workers in the South and others have had to be found. There's also trouble in Brussels and now... Oh, now there's trouble in Paris. I heard about Paris. What did you hear? Just that there's trouble. Is that why Madeleine no, is no. going to... Madeline was gone to visit a friend, I told you. So I'm really confused by the start of this episode with... Is, there's a deliberate vagueness to... There's troubles in Brussels, which almost rhymes, and there's troubles in Paris. But there's such a vague sense of this, and there's no clear indication of what it's about. Is it just that the war's still happening? I mean... Is it that they've lost safe houses? They've lost personnel? I just wish they'd be more clear about it. Yeah, we get a bit of detail later on, don't we, in that it impacts Lifeline and Lisa if people um, she's working with are working for more than one yes. group. Or, and that's really problematic because it's, it's not just putting themselves in more danger, it's putting everyone in Lifeline in more da- danger, as Julius points out. But we need to know that from the start or we need, we need justification because... Sophie's is yes, it Sophie? Yeah. yeah, Sophie's like, you know, oh, you don't go to the, you know, this worry about her going to yeah. the garage, and then I think there just needs to be something a bit more to justify her potentially risking her life and Lifeline's lives to go there. And also, what I didn't realise is that one of the people that is involved there is Jacques Ball, who we've met before, and it's just said really quickly in passing. At the start, they just say Jacques and Vincent. So we think, oh, well, they're just French names. We don't know who they are. But later on in the prison, one of them says Jacques Ball, or Julius does. Someone does. And we're like, oh, oh wow, we know Jacques Ball, albeit briefly. I mean, the casual viewer will have forgotten them completely, but we know all there is to know about Jacques Ball. Yeah, former cyclist. <laughs> At the Wuppertal. Wuppertal, sorry. Between 1937 and 1939, they were the Jacques Ballyers. They were. He deals in tyres. Maybe he was dealing in tyres <laughs> yes. as well as his other resistance work. And it's specifically the fact that Jacques and Vincent are in trouble, that Lifeline's in trouble, and that's why she goes to see Julius. But, but it's not really clear enough. Yeah, and there's no follow-up. We don't have any scenes later with Jacques where they're like, whew, that was a bit of trouble in Paris, nearly got arrested or something. Or... Especially seeing as Jacques is in the very next episode in a key role. So it's kind of a shame. 
I'm like, come on, brain. <laughs> but this might be where I'm forgetting that he's in that episode as well. Yeah, so he's he's in Identity in Doubt and has a lot of scenes. So he's going around with Natalie and the... Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. See, I forget yeah. that that's the same character. I know. It's odd, isn't it? And I rewatched that recently as well for my interview with a special guest, which you will see oh. in the next episode. Oh. Very excited, very excited. <laughs> Tease the listeners. We have two actors who will return to Secret Army who appear as this episode's Airman of the Week. Daniel Hill, who will return memorably in Series 2, The Big One. And John Alkin, who will return in Series 2 uh, in Day of Wrath as the guy who shoots up Avenue Louise. Oh, he's that okay, yeah. Yeah. That's good. I love all these connections. Again, this links back to what I was saying earlier, where you're like, oh, yeah, you picked up on that. Good spot. <laughs> but um, I can't go too far on this episode without discussing the, the Retalis touches, because we have one quite early on. Yes. Which, this isn't just a directorial flourish. This is a, a choice as to... I love you like, this isn't a directorial flourish. This is a choice. <laughs> <laughs> this is... This is deciding to actually film stuff, which I'm sure wasn't in the script, <laughs> quite honestly. I just think it's a, a real shame in that what he's decided to do really threw me off. Like, because I thought, I thought it was a, a man dressed as a woman as like a disguise. And I thought yeah. that they were like following Natalie or like spying on Natalie and the airmen. Yeah. And I thought Natalie was in real trouble. And then I was like, no, it's just a weird, it's just a weird scene. So it kind of took me down a, a path that we weren't supposed to go on as, as a viewer, uh, which was unfortunate. Yeah. So if you've not watched the episode recently or you missed it, this is an old woman going along with a big pram. And you think, oh, it's a sweet grandma taking a granddaughter down, or grandchild um, for a walk in the pouring rain. You thought that? I thought, it, I di- see, I didn't even think that. I was like, there's no sweet grandma element to that. All right, Okay. And then you see in the pram, and it's this battered China doll, mm. which looks quite malevolent because it's so battered and blackened. And I wrote in my, my book all those years ago that I felt that the scene was there because this old woman was clearly disturbed, had lost her child during the war and had taken to taking a, this doll out for a walk in the pram. It's, yeah. it's spooky stuff. But yes, it's connected so much with with Natalie and they have a sort of face-off, don't they, briefly? Victor, please just just zoom out of the faces just a little bit for me, please. It just, it's it's hurting me to watch. It's a lot, isn't it? So yeah, odd. And and I think things like that work so effectively. Secret Army does it so effectively. So as a quick example, when Albert in series three is going to is walking to Monique's well walking to Natalie's flat to see Monique with flowers and it's contrasted with a couple walking down the street the other way. Perfect. Yeah. But here there's nothing to contrast it with. It's not making a point that this woman's lost a baby in the war versus something with Natalie. Like there's no connection. Yeah. Other, yeah, there's no connection. So there's no juxtaposition. Yes, that's a fancy word I was looking for. Thank yeah. you. So, yeah. So that's where I get baffled. I'm like, what am I? What are we contrasting this with? Yeah, and then you've got the Pasta Petite Sablon shot later on where you've got the rich couple who are living it up and have clearly been to a, a wedding or a party and they're pouring champagne and they're lording it up in the back of this car. I can't remember if it's a Rolls Royce. It's something like that. And then next to him... Next to them, you've got this old man who's eating a few scraps of bread. 
<clears throat> and he clearly hasn't got any teeth. And you can just imagine Victor saying, I need a man with no teeth, who looks really, you know, old. And <laughs> then you have Natalie walking in, looking very dolled up, watching both. And obviously, considering the contrast between the two. And I think there, like, that would kind of work if it was like, Natalie's had this really difficult time, you know, she's so upset about Lisa, and Lisa's been arrested. Yeah. If she then walked out of the Candide, having, like, told the news to Albert and Monique, yeah. then had that shot of people just having their, having a great time, no consequences, you know, no troubles. But, but again, it's not, so it's just really... <laughs> and, yeah, and you've got the contrast between them and the old man, you're like, well, is the point that the war carries on anyway? Or is it about the rich-poor divide? yeah. I think it's just too indulgent, bottom line. Other Victor's Retellis touches, we've got after Julius is arrested, got some wind really blowing a lot of papers through the garage. You've got um, Pocket Watch. I didn't know Pocket Watches could play music, so I was like, oh. But as, as he shot, it plays a little tune and spins around. Yeah. We've got some very, very loud ticking at various points in the episodes. <laughs> yeah. And there's a shot of Louise that's through her fireplace. So they got behind the set. And I, you know how I love to say, like, shelf cam and binoculars cam? We've got fireplace cam. <laughs> Yay! But you, you keep thinking about how much, would it, how much time would it have taken to set up these shots that actually are incidental, quite honestly. Oh, no, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that. I thought it was very effective. I, love, I loved that. Yeah, that one, but all of them. It doesn't interfere with the story. No, but all of them. I think it's, I think it's a lot. Where is the ticking? I've got a timestamp here. 37 minutes, 44 seconds. Just, all right, we get it, this ticking. (laughs) I mean, I love Victor's really going for it and being a different director. And I think he's very good at film direction. But I I do think that sometimes it's, it's just too much. And I think that's where I feel frustrated in a way because it takes you out of the episode a bit and then it doesn't... You don't need to change it that much. Just turn it down from from 90 <laughs> to 70. Yeah, that's all we're asking. That's all we're asking. Have yeah. to, have, the ticking is very effective and I, I remember watching another movie where um, they actually, like, in a scene where it was getting more tense, they actually sped the ticking up, but you, you wouldn't note... It wasn't detracting from the scene, you know, so... Yeah. So... I'm hoping you can solve this mystery for me, because I don't understand. Ooh. Lisa arrives in Sonlis. Yes. Why are Natalie and the airmen waiting in the park? Is it because they both can't be seen to be at the Chantal sisters' house? I think it's a security thing, isn't it? So, like, if Natalie was being followed, you then wouldn't be leading someone uh-huh. directly to a, a, to a safe house. Okay. And in the real... Comet line, that's where they got into troubles, is if you let security checks like that lapse. So the idea was that Lisa would meet yeah. Natalie in the park and effectively exchange the airmen, and then she would go with them to the Chantal sisters' yeah. house. And I think it's also adding another layer of, like, if there is any troubles or something doesn't seem right, then Natalie, I don't know, Natalie could make a sign, Lisa could carry on walking, and they, they then would not put, be putting that safe house in jeopardy. Right, okay. So it's like a checkpoint, really. Yeah, that's fair enough. So I'm going to. F- so can you stop being so hard on the series? <laughs> Where it is unfortunate is that if Lisa knows Natalie's going to be waiting for her, well, I suppose she doesn't know at that point, does she? She thinks she's just going to stop by the garage and then pick up the airman, but it's not, it's not a great idea, is it, Lisa? 
Come on. Yeah, that's odd. She's been very lax this episode, and I don't know why. And you like you you're risking everybody. Yeah. And the other thing that kind of makes it a bit weird is we were int- introduced to Sophie and Madeleine Chantal last time, Mary Barclay and Ruth Gower. Now I think it was simply that Ruth Gower wasn't available, or she was ill, or yeah. something. And the, the idea was that they would have both the Chantal sisters. Because you have this dialogue which feels like it was just put in there. It's like, oh yeah, Madeline's in Paris visiting friends or something. It's like, it's too, it's a bad, I think it was a bad decision because it makes it feel like Madeline is somehow involved in the troubles in Paris. And it's a bit confusing because we know that Jacques and Vincent are in Paris and that Lisa needs to check what's happening in Paris. And you think, well, if Madeline's there, there's already a connection of stuff going on. And it's just all a bit odd that it was a choice of Paris. It would have been better if she was say, saying, oh, yeah, Madeleine's in Lyon or, or, or just anywhere. She's got a headache or and she's in bed. Something. Yeah. But I think it, it worked for me in that if you're Lisa, you've got a lot of people that you're worrying about and if they all go and decide to do things, like check out things in other towns, what a nightmare. Right. Okay. So I can see that from a how hard it is to manage the line point of view yeah. when people like Jacques are like, oh, I'm not working for anyone else yet. You've said that's dangerous. Actually, off I go. Jacques, no! <laughs> Why is Lisa travelling under her, her own papers? That's a really good question. Because I remember being quite stunned this last time I watched it when she said, oh, my name's Lisa Colbert. And I'm like, really? Well, she can't lie at that point because she she hasn't got any other papers on her, so she's got... I know, but but that's why, she, as you say, she should have had other papers. Yeah, yeah. And if your uncle is Gaston Colbert, you'd, I'd like to think you'd have several sets of papers on you. Yeah. Master Forger. Yeah, it was interesting, actually, because they've not mentioned Gaston being questioned before. And then Kessler's like, oh, we've had you in for questioning before. So at that point, why didn't he go stop stop doing as much work or be, be safer? Yeah. Yeah, and and having both of them... And he's connected, as we know, to lots of different resistance work. Yes, because he's also helping Jews escape from Brussels, isn't he? Yes. Or at least have the right colour identity. Well, yeah, and he's distributing money, identity cards. He's clearly meeting up with loads of different people around Brussels. I don't know, it just all felt like they were being very lax. And that made me sad because innocent lives are affected (laughs) (laughs) by their lax security. And yes, yeah. and she's going to this garage when she shouldn't. Yeah. I do, I do think that the guy playing Julius was very good, Sean Curry. Yeah, he was great. I, be, I, I believed in him, in him as a character. And I thought the scenes that they had there were, were already good. Um, famous apocryphal story being that when he shot, that Victor's Retellis slapped Jan Francis in the face in order to get the reaction out of her that he wanted, which... Just sounds terrible and wrong. Well, we discussed that a lot in Sergeant on the Run, didn't we? Yeah. When we spoke, spoke, just yeah. awful. Yeah. It's good to see Jan Francis getting more to do the normal as Lisa because she is in charge of the line, and it's good to see her on manoeuvres and doing stuff just as Didi Andre de Jean did. So that's good. Um, however, I would say that just because of I think their flair for drama. I would love to have seen, as you put in your notes, um, this being a Monique story. You know, I could just see her really just pulling it off more. I think Jan Francis is a competent actress, but I've always thought she's better at comedy. So I think it's great that Lisa has more to do, but, and I, I do love the moment where she's in prison and she realises, well, first of all, it all, all seems to be lost. 
But then when she realises that her friends are coming for her, I just... But also, she is seen to be really vulnerable and young, and I think that's important, that these young, vulnerable people really took it upon themselves to do something incredibly brave. And I think it's good to depict that. I was interrogated today. I'm just here until they check my story. <laughs> is that what they said? Yes. You are here until they shoot you. You're in Pontoise. Haven't you heard of it? No. We're hostages. If they have a case against you, they take you to court. If they have no case, just a suspicion, they say they're checking your story. You're sent here. And once here, you're forgotten. And when our friends on the outside blow up a train or kill German soldiers, they shoot hostages. But also that you'd underestimate this person completely. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's given good screen time. Yeah. But um, the scene where she pulls the cover up in prison, I thought that was really effective and a good performance. My only other um, question as well is... Yeah. Why doesn't Natalie phone in the two days where she's looking for Lisa? Because if she had called as soon as Lisa didn't show up for the rendezvous hmm. and said, Lisa's not shown up, what's happening? I don't know what's happening, but just FYI. They could have put both Louise and Gaston in a safe place. So the fact that she didn't let them know until she just turns up and goes, I've got Yvette's travelling case, she's been missing, and now I've just learnt she's been arrested. She's... She could have saved them. <laughs> but do they know that he's been brought in for questioning? So in, in my head, in the timeline of this episode, yeah. <laughs> they're in Sonley. Yeah. Lisa's supposed to meet Natalie, pick up the airman, and then obviously doesn't because she's been arrested. Yeah. So on day one of that incident, <laughs> Natalie knows something's wrong because Lisa's not shown up. So if she had immediately told the guys in the Condit... <laughs> the guys. <laughs> then... This is why people tune into this I podcast. I know, I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> the guys, the Condit, I'm joking. Um, then they could have immediately got them into a safe house, Gaston and Louise. But I'm not following. Why do they need to get them into a safe house? Well, if Lisa's been arrested... All right. Okay. The names. Okay. Yes. And it's the same Sorry. names. And she says she just she has to say because she's not travelling under false papers that she lives with yes, her aunt and uncle. Course. The first thing I would do then is be like, right. Well, we'll get the aunt and uncle in for questioning then. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm not following. And then you'd make make a way better German than me <laughs> <laughs> because I don't think Gaston was arrested the same day Lisa was. It makes it look like because Natalie comes in and she's like, "Oh well, it's been two. I've been trying to find out what happened for two days." Yeah. Well, why didn't she just call ahead and yeah. and get and, Gaston and yeah. Louise to safety, and then when they were going to pick up Gaston again, they wouldn't be able to. Yeah, or if all the phone lines had been down or something. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Just a quick line in. Yeah, if the phone lines had been down, Natalie wasn't able to communicate. And then Gaston got arrested because of Lisa. That yes. would be better, wouldn't it? Especially if he'd been questioned before, it would then be another thing that would tip them over to be like, well, suspicious. Yeah, <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> you see, we could have tightened this up. We would have had this. We would have had this script meeting, wouldn't we? We would have tightened this up. That's that's just my only thing. When I when I was rewatching it last night for today, I was just like, oh, yeah. If, if I like that, if a telephone exchange had got bombed and they couldn't call from Paris to Belgium. Yeah. I'd yeah. take that. My other my other small point, which... And then I'm done with all my points and I'll stop nitpicking, is 
I don't get why Kessler then doesn't go after Louise or Lisa. No. After shooting Gaston, because... Especially as Gaston twice says... Oh, uh, yeah, come on, guys. <laughs> he says, oh, is there anything in the file about about my niece? And I'm like... He might as well up. just sit there and say, is there anything in the file about my niece who is doing some very dangerous work? helping, work? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> helping down Dermon, down, you know, escape I, to safety. But what I do like about that is it just shows how deep his love for for Lisa is, yeah. and also that he is kind of beyond it at that point. He's he's lost it. Sure, sure. So I kind of forgive it, and I think it's good because it's exciting, and you think, oh no, Kessler shouldn't hear about this. But yeah, I can understand why he says what he says. I think that I think it works. Yeah, and I just again, I just feel like there's not any follow through that in later episodes they don't go. Shit, so sorry your uncle has been murdered. What does that mean for you then? Because he was involved in so much resistance work, so they'll surely come question you now. Yeah, and instead of following up on that, what they do follow up on later, of course, is the Mr. Muriel stuff, and the death of Hugh Neville, and that stuff becomes important later on. Yes. But you'd think that this side of it would have become more important as well. I think there's a mention. I think there's some sort of mention about the link between Gaston and Lisa. Right. But I might be misremembering. Yeah. But, yeah, I agree there should be more. Yeah. More, I tell you. So it's one of those incidences in Secret Army where you're like, you make these connections as a viewer, like, oh, my gosh, and then in a future episode, Lisa's going to be in so much trouble because they're going to come after her next, and then you're like, or not. (laughs) 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 Which is like the making of Acorn Antiques when they're deciding how to make this crap soap opera. And they said, oh, we'll pick that up in a later storyline. It's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's that sort of thing. Anyway, I've, I've got all that out of the way now. Oh, no, I've got one more. <laughs> oh, wow. Go. I just thought it was a shame. Like, you've got Natalie coming in. I've got Yvette's travelling case. I found out she's been arrested. She's really upset. So you're like, oh, I guess you really cared about Lisa. And then Curtis just comes in and goes, have you heard about Lisa? <laughs> And then it just really undermines this really beautiful scene yeah. with some great acting in because he's just come in out of nowhere. He's not in the rest of the episode. And then he's like, oh, yeah, well, I've just found out. And it made it sound like Natalie had to do so much work to find out about Lisa. And it just it's such a shame that he had to come in and mansplain the situation. He ju- it just really undermined that whole beautiful scene that just came before it yeah. and all of the yeah. good, good acting everyone had just done. And... There was another scene you wanted to particularly pick out and praise, wasn't there? To do with Angela Richards. Yes, it's when Monique and Albert have their exchange and it's it's all through their eyes and the way they interact with each other on screen and all that Monique's character gets to say is, I know. And I just love the fact that there's a realisation at this point that those characters don't need to explain their love for each other and take care and you must be careful and all that stuff. She just says, I know. And it's just such a beautifully sparse moment. Yeah. That that is yeah, therefore more dramatic. Monique. I know. Be careful. You too. So I've got another question for you. Since we've talked a lot on previous episodes about how it's been heavily signposted that Gaston's going to meet a sticky end. Yeah. How did you feel it actually played out in the episode? Were you happy with it? Did you feel that it was too obvious given previous episodes or did you give it that watching this? In my first watch, 
I wasn't putting enough together over the episodes, I think. So it was like, yeah. oh, wow, oh, no, <laughs> like, no, not him. Something bad's going to happen to him. And Yeah. But because, well, we have been watching these over quite a long time, actually, because we started recording in April, didn't we? So it's now May, June, yeah. July, August. So four months later. But it when it was another mention in this episode, it felt a bit too much of Louise being like, oh, please stop all your work. Yes. But then maybe yeah. there's something to to be said for the the futility of it and the emotional impact of the futility of it. It's too late now. Even if he stopped now, it's kind of they're already onto him. So yeah. But yeah. I really I really liked it. The scenes with him and Kessler were amazing. So well performed. So well written. Oh. When he comes back out with his stubble on his face, he looks so haggard, and yeah. it's really taken its toll. You you kind of don't know is he been physically hurt or just kept at this point what was really impactful for me was the kind of um being in deep trouble aspect of he's being taken out after hours he's not being taken out you know when in other scenes in avenue louise you see soldiers soldiers um on the phone or like doing some paperwork there's like yeah. a nine till five kind of office aspect of it yeah but because yeah. they're taking him down the back and it's completely deserted apart from one guard on the door you're like this is bad like if you're in that position that's bad (laughs) no one's even witnessing you leave the building at this point i think it was a really good choice to shoot these scenes at night it really makes it scarier and you know that also makes you think of the weeds waiting alone at home yeah and they contrasted that really well like with her waiting and just a few seconds long and you're like oh oh no and that sense of dread and anticipation and and i I didn't mind that there was an air raid and that there was flickering lights. I, I that was an example for me of where it's all done just right and it just added to the tension of it. Yeah, and, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and what uh, oh, like what he knows then that what he's got to do, he's got to. It's not going to end well, yeah. or yeah. he he's got he, to sacrifice himself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he might think he can't withstand torture, and so that's what he's going to do to protect everyone that he knows. I kind of think. I like the choice of suddenly Gaston's in front of Kessler. Yeah. But given you've got inconsequential scenes, like the the rich people and the poor man and some of the scenes in Sonley um, in the rain in the park, I just think it would have been a better, perhaps more of a through narrative, if you'd had someone following Gaston and seeing him throw the bag in the river. Yeah, or actually, now you've just said it, we have a lot of scenes where Louise is trying to get Gaston to stop, but why don't you show, take out half of those and have Gaston meeting another man and being watched? Yeah, And exactly. place them throughout previous episodes. Because, yeah, to know that they've been watching him all along is like, oh, have they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a nice impact moment, but at the same time, I think that would have been a better choice. Yeah. Yeah. So... There's so many good things about that interrogation. I mean, Kessler is at is his most heartless yeah. and inhuman here. And I think he's so formidable and scary. And it's a reminder of who he is and how fervently he believes in the, in the Third Reich and the Nazi cause and how these people are just, you know, dust beneath his feet. He doesn't care about these people. He just wants to stamp them out. They are less than human to him. And... Just the the way he deals with Gaston with with no humanity mm. is just. I think it's important to see this, and it it sets Kessler up as more of a villain than than he has been previously. And you realise, wow, he's a serious foe. It's getting late, and my wife will be worried. I was only going for a walk. You may telephone her. 
to telephone her from here would make her even more worried. Very likely. If you are so law-abiding, why is it you've been questioned so often? Everyone is questioned. You have a niece who lives with you, Lisa Colbert. She lives with us, yes. At this moment? She is a young woman. She has a life of her own. She works very hard as a nurse. Does it say something about Lisa? Should it? No. She is a good girl. She does good work with her patients. Does it say something about her in there? No. But it says something about you. It says here that you should be watched. I don't know why. Then I will tell you. You have a file in this office because of your behaviour. Like your behaviour this evening. And because of the friends you meet. Friends who deal in stolen documents, stolen ration cards. I know no such things. Good. If you are such a law-abiding citizen, you will be prepared to help us. If you are not our enemy, Monsieur Colbert, you must be our friend. We expect our friends to cooperate. And I think it's important that we have that coming through because what has surprised me most in this rewatch so far is how little Kessler's been in it. Yeah. It's really surprised me. So for having centre stage again, so important. Yeah. And we learn so much about him. I mean, the fact that he's even sarcastic in this situation, like where where Gaston's saying, I would like to call my wife, but then if I call her from here, she's probably going to be more worried. And he just says, very likely. And it's it's really witty, and but also so cruel. Yeah. And then to continually withhold the, the request, withhold the chance of a, a call home, because he knows what it, would mean to him and that's what breaks Gaston I think is the fact that he's not able to make any contact with the outside world it's the isolation technique of torture I think yeah yeah which is just heart-rending and Kessler knows exactly what he's doing and there's something about that futility of like oh here's some people and write down what you know about them so of course Gaston's not going to write you know the key information down but Kessler knows that it's just another point to kind of wear you down isn't it yeah. And then scrunches it up. And they look like they've been sat there for ages. And you're just like, oh, yeah, I hate all of this. Poor Gaston. You just know he's totally doomed. And that is exciting because you know it has impact for the series. You know, At this point, you know it's no longer like, oh, everything's tied up by the end of the episode series. That it will have a through line. This is the point at which it properly starts to develop as a long-running series. Yeah, well, there's consequences for the main yeah. characters, not just for the side characters yes. or the characters of the week that have tragic stories. Yeah, because there's a horrible um, parallel universe in which at the end of every episode, everyone gets back to the Condide, all the Lifeline regulars, and they have a laugh about <laughs> that week's hijinks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But... Yeah. At the end of this episode, Albert isn't coming going, hey-ho. <laughs> yes. I wasn't going to open this bottle. I was saving it for after the war, but hey, yeah. here we are. We all made it. No, exactly. And I'm just... I'm just glad that it's starting to get darker and it's really... Um... Yeah, and Maria Charles' scenes, um, I know there is some disagreement about how over the top it might seem when she is doing the V on the wall and then the hand slide and it changes between her and Gaston. It, I, I don't have any issues with it. It's very effective and um, moving for me. I think I didn't when I first watched it or the first few times. I think because I'm watching it for this rewatch and I'm seeing all the Victor's Retellus touches... It's just like, oh, God, do we have to have both the hands slide down at the same time? But actually, when I first watched it, I thought it was hugely affecting. So this is the danger of over-critiquing something. Yeah, or over-watching. Over-watching, yeah, exactly. 
I just find it so so effective. Her performance is amazing, and yeah, having been in the depths of grief uh, myself, that is exactly how you cry. You know, when things like that have happened, and yeah, it just gets me gets me in the feels every time. If I may, I'd like to go back to Inspector Landre. Oh, he is brilliant. Played by Gerald James. I don't know whether you've ever seen his Sapphire and Steel episodes. No, I haven't. I've I've seen a bit of the first episode of Sapphire and Steel, and I do want to yeah. watch it. Um, I haven't seen it yet. So the six adventures, the first adventure has two children in it, which are quite annoying, and it feels like more of a children's series. But it's still, it's still worth watching. But Adventure 2 is all set on a disused railway station, and it's... It goes between the present day in the 70s and 1914 and 1918. And there's this World War I soldier who keeps appearing and Sapphire keeps changing back into, into clothing from that time. And there's a ghost hunter called Tully who's the main guest star and he's played by Gerald James. And it's one of the most effective, nostalgic, but also terrifying episodes of anything I, it's i think it's eight episodes it's really long but it's amazing and it's not got a title it's adventure two but it's known by fans as the railway station but i think it's the best sapphire and seal story oh, i'll have to go back and rewatch it and that's what i love about you know becoming a fan of secret army is i'm i'm getting to learn about all these actors who yeah who are amazing yeah. doing incredible things and i haven't heard of before so yeah i'd love to see more of his work you definitely love Gerald James Moore after seeing that. Honestly, it's amazing. The scenes he has with David McCallum and Joanna Lumley, just, ah! So Lisa is hugely unlucky to face up to Inspector Landre and his fastidious ways. I love how he does it as well because he's he's kind of letting her talk herself into more trouble in a way because he's like oh he's kind of humoring her but he doesn't yeah. buy it he's like oh so you're here to rent a bicycle and it's like go on then try and explain that one oh okay and you're here to see a friend who's moved like it's yeah i love it so well written that scene yeah it is there's a lot of detail to it lisa does quite well but not quite well enough yeah and you can understand why he's he's suspicious and as you said it's like it's really good writing because you think, oh, she's going to get away with it. They're going to let her go. But no, it's not possible. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that it's not just that she's taken in for questioning, she's imprisoned. That is a real shock. I remember when I, that, I first, what? Lisa's going to prison. I was like, my God, that's terrifying. This can't be good. Yeah. Especially when you see her realise the consequences of it. And they're like, no, no, if you're being held while you're papers are being checked that really means you're here you're here for until you die essentially yeah, exactly yeah and that, that was something else um I thought was really affecting was I wouldn't necessarily have known about those kinds of prisoners before watching Secret Army and even before you have what happens to the t the other two women in the cell at the end they're like yeah we're here until something happens and then we'll be taken out and shot at random yeah so, so they're just there until they die basically which is so sickening and awful yeah yeah it is and then you see one of them has like a broken arm and yes yeah before we leave um sonlis and go to the pontoir yes i just wanted to say that i thought the fight scene was really well done yes yeah it was it was really gutsy as i'd expect of victor's retellis really felt real yeah and again the futility for that character is yes it's not he's not gonna 
defeat all of them and then get away. Yeah. But he's given it, a, you know, given it a go. Yeah. And you just really feel for him and. And a very deliberate thing of having him dragged across the the flagstones with yeah. the seg in his boots scratching. Yeah. All the way across. Now, do you know about segs? I do, but only because tweeting about Secret Army means I have a lot of older followers who might tweet about things like sex and so there was a thread on does anyone remember sex and it was like yeah oh, I had Blakey's on my shoes and things like that <laughs> so that's the yeah. that's the only reason I, I wouldn't know about them otherwise because there was a time in the early 80s where all of us were putting sex in our shoes like metal bits in your shoes so they made that click noise on the floor and it was like the coolest thing and it's just really bizarre that I'd completely forgotten about them <laughs> I think if you spoke to um, anyone else my age or younger, I don't think they would have heard of them. I think I just know about them because of my niche interest <laughs> in Secret <laughs> Army yeah. and the resulting information I learn from that. So if anyone else remembers SEGS, please get in touch with us <laughs> at Secret Army Pod. <laughs> okay, so we move on to the action at the Pontoise. And as you've already said, this terrifying reality of this place is that it's a place where effectively hostages are taken and no one's getting out of there until, you know, something's happened and they they decide to, to shoot someone as a reprisal. It seemed oddly small. Only eight women in the prison. Yeah. Well, there's so many odd things about the Pontoise. I mean, point P in my notes <laughs> shows how many points I had. Even I could escape from Pontoise prison, I wrote. <laughs> it's kind of, it's a curious mix between this really terrifying wardress played by Brenda Kempner who many people will know as Mrs. Gross from Doctor Who's Ghostlight, um, who is kind of like the freak from Prisoner Cell Block H. Really terrifying. Or um, just to throw this in there for for younger listeners, Wentworth. Yes, sorry, from Wentworth. <laughs> we might know Wentworth better than Prisoner Cell Block H, but yeah. Yeah, so J- Joan Ferguson, otherwise known as the freak. Yeah, who's this terrifying wardress character, and she's really got a reign of terror in there. You see a few, you see a few German soldiers, but you don't really see any other sort of guards. But it seems like this place is run on a real short staff and hasn't got many rooms. And the prisoners seem to be able to talk to each other just fine. All the time, you can you can smuggle people into different cells. Yeah. And everyone knows where everything is in the building. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so weird. There's that moment where they escape from the cell, and Jan is immediately able to go and get her clothes from a cubby hole yeah. knowing exactly which is her cubby hole and then they turn to a filing cabinet and manage to get her file out of the filing cabinet in the same room and I'm like I'm sorry no that's too contrived yeah and if there's only eight women in the prison I don't think it's a big consequence at the end because the woman would be like well it doesn't matter because I know she's Lisa Colbert so I'm just going to phone ahead to the other Gestapo you know to the Gestapo and say Lisa's escaped whereas she's like oh, who was she and it's like well I think you'd know there's only eight of them, but anyway. I said I was done with my nitpicking and I'm back, I'm sorry. Well, there are problems with the Pontoise scenes. It feels like heightened drama in an almost, almost melodramatic way. I don't quite buy it. Yeah. I think the acting isn't as bad as I thought it was. I was thinking, oh God, this is the one with the bad acting in the prison. But I don't think it's it's so much the bad acting because... I didn't, I didn't feel like anyone was acting no. badly. I, I just felt yeah, it was I just... Agree. A, I think they just had a thing of, you know, we, we obviously can't go higher budget for a more dramatic escape, but we're doing the best with what we've got. And unfortunately, it means it just looks a bit silly because they're escaping really easily. So shout out to Damien Thomas, 
who is Jake in Tenko, who plays Jan here. Oh, of course. Who um, gets that meeting with, with Lisa and kind of is leading the escape, I guess. We appreciate your caution, but we have our own security. We know what Lisa Colbert does and her codename. Do you? Trust him, Lisa. No, wait. I run an escape line. Go on. My codename is Yvette. Jack and Vincent, who are they? My help is in Paris. What did you last talk about to Julius? Uh, um, I was asking him if they were safe. Correct. But you've got Helen Gill, who hasn't been in very much else, as Denise, who is pretty good. And in a very small role, Suad Fares as Maria Panago, who is just like a stalwart of British television. She's been in everything. Just to make another Tenko connection, sorry, Taff the Airman that we've mentioned earlier is obviously also in Tenko as... Of course, Daniel Hill, who plays... Um... The worst boyfriend ever. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, what's his name? Tom. Of course it's Tom, isn't it? If anyone proposed to me, like the way Tom proposes to Kate in Tenko, I'd be like... Out. I'm sorry, this relationship's ending now. <laughs> and Get out. <laughs> I don't know why I was with you for so long. So long, farewell. Auf saying goodbye. <laughs> also, you've got... Um, I flit, I float, I flit, I fly. Um, <laughs> but you've also got Jeffrey Holland, who everyone knows is Spike in Heidi High, who also appears during the escape, which is just a shame because it makes you think, oh, this is Spike from Heidi High, so just... Just the unfortunate accident of having him amongst this escape just makes you feel like you're immediately in Maplin's holiday camp. So <laughs> maybe not to you, but it did to me. But the escape takes so long. The waiting by doors. Did Heidi High have that? Who's that woman who was in Sue Pollard in? Yeah. Because I feel like I just have a memory of going like, Heidi High, but that's all I've got. Holy ho! <laughs> from that show. I cannot remember anything else about it. But when you mentioned it, that was my memory coming through so there was a kind of a very lewd old style comic called ted bovis and spike was his sort of right. straight man his comedy comedy partner and that was um that was the part that jeffrey holland had and peggy was the chalet maid played oh, okay. by sue pollard who would often have schemes with with those two the other memory that like of sue pollard was like you know when you're like i remember a show that no one has ever mentioned ever which is like there's yeah. some and i can still sing the theme tune but it was like oh <laughs> dr beecham what shall we do and it was about like the railway being closed yeah, dr beeching dr beeching sorry and um oh dr beeching what have you done da -da 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 We'll have to buy a bike because we can't afford a car. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> like, what oh, is that? Oh, Miss Dr. Beach, what an awful man you are. are. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Never met anyone else who remembers that. So thank you, Andy, for proving that I didn't just make that up in a fever dream. <laughs> it was one of the DVD sets that I was asked to write copy for, but it was as I was going out of the door of working for DD Video, so I didn't actually end up doing it, but it was on the list. Were you like, oh no, I've got to go. <laughs> Bye. I've got to stay. Dr. Beeching. No, I'm off. I'm off. <laughs> anyway, I digress. As do I. So yes, the prison scenes, there's a really unfortunate pacing problem at this point because the prison scenes are intercut with the scenes of interrogation and of Albert, Albert visiting um, Louise at home and you have them waiting at the door for 
it feels like five minutes before they try to escape. And they keep coming back to them. And it's like, oh, but just leave, for God's sake. You can't stay. And I also feel my other problem with the prison scenes is after they escape and the wardress comes in and she really is violent with them and it's vicious. And like, you know, as we said, Maria Panago has a broken arm and and she... She really screams so viscerally when she's attacked. And it, it feels like, I, I don't know, can it be too much? Because I think because of the other scenes in the prison are so melodramatic, I just don't buy that drama at the end. And it just feels vicious and too much. But maybe we're just trying to show something that's, that was so hideously vicious. I don't know. It's, it's, for some reason, it doesn't quite marry up for me. I, th- I think it's pitched very well perfectly uh if anything it doesn't go far enough for me when you read about what people actually went through but you can't show more than that really in a in a family drama but yeah but like um in the in the comment line i've mentioned that there were two elsies a mother elsie and then her daughter was also called elsie yeah and when her daughter was captured uh and she um was hurt so badly that she couldn't lie on her back for a month and carried the scars with her for the rest of her life so uh, when you read stories like that then what happens in the episode seems quite tame, but yeah, you can't obviously show horrific scenes of torture. Uh, no, exactly. In Secret Army. But. Yeah, I think it's just I think those scenes would have been better if I'd believed in the escape more, but because I didn't believe in the escape, there's kind of a mismatch. Can I go on to? Please do. Making a quick point, I've forgotten the actress's name, but I know you know it. Who played Maria? Suad Fares. Yes. Whilst you can't kind of necessarily always look at someone and immediately accurately work out their um, ethnicity or... Yeah. She does stand out to me as being one of the few people in the first series anyway. I can't remember the other two off the top of my head of person of colour in Secret Army. Mm. And um, yeah, I just wanted to mention a few things, if I may, where I get all like, here's some people in history that people can read about because history in the Second World War does get very whitewashed. Yeah, Totally. People of colour were obviously there. So, yeah, the listeners, I won't I won't bang on too much about uh, these things because it's not directly Secret Army related, but I thought it was a shame that they never had, like, a, a black airman or yeah. black pilot in Secret Army because they did exist, yeah. and you can read about those. So there's some really good books by Stephen Bourne, and um, there's also one which I've got here because it's really beautifully illustrated. Uh-huh. Not very good for the listeners, though. It's called Britain's Black Airmen by K.N. Chimbury, and that's a really beautiful book. You can also learn about people like Amelia King, who was um, a black woman who was in the Land Army in the UK. And, of course, you've got things like uh, Noor Inayat Khan. Yes, I've read the book about Noor. Yeah, fantastic. She was, she was SOE, wasn't she? You've also got um, a movie coming out this year or next year called Six Triple Eight about... So it was mostly black women in this unit who sorted out mail for the Uh uh, United States military. And uh, they came and sorted out a huge backlog of mail by working 24 hours a day to clear the backlog and sorted through like millions of items of post. And again, it's just completely erased from history until until recently. So I think it's really uh, important to mention these things. And because it would have a different impact on the airmen as well. If you're yeah. shut down, you can't yeah. you, you can't really hide and blend in in the way that white airmen can. So, And that did happen to people. So so can we put um, references in the show notes to those? Absolutely, yeah. And check out, uh, when, when the episode is released, I'll, I'll do um, links and 
signposting on Instagram and Twitter, which is at Secret Army Pod on those platforms. Wonderful. Yeah. You're listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. So it's funny because it's an episode I really enjoy, but I feel like I've really critiqued it quite harshly. We said that about um, guilt as well, didn't we? we... Yes. <laughs> Because guilt is one of my favourites as well. I and mean, I think this is just what you do when you podcast about something and you watch it in detail knowing you're going to watch something for a podcast. And maybe because to us, we know we love it so much. So yeah. we maybe forget to, to say that because for us, it's so instinctive. Yeah. I do have more praise, though. Oh, good. Carry on. Just praising Austin Ruddy's work for the uh, Colbert household set which is just such a beautiful and rich set. And again, I love pausing it and looking at all of the detail of that. Mm. Yeah. We have the final scenes, which you've already referred to, where, where Maria Charles's Louise goes out and paints a victory V on the wall. Just such an affecting ending. And you have Lisa coming across her and helping her, you know, at the point beyond anything, isn't she? At the point at which Lisa helps her back home. It's at that point when the episode title comes up too near home and it suddenly feels like such a an appropriate title. <laughs> And at the start of the episode, you think, well, why is this called Too Near Home? But I think it's just a really brilliant title. Um, I don't talk about titles a lot. But <laughs> Too Near Home, I think it's just, it's a very sort of cosy, but also terrifyingly frightening title because it's about, you know, because home should be safe. Yeah. Home, sh- home should be, you know, it's not just your house. It's actually where you live and you feel safe. And the fact that this has come too near home and... Lifeline's been under serious threat. I think it's just a really good title. Again, very kind of succinct, too near home. Yeah. It's one of those where you like, you just like saying it, like trapped. Yeah. Too near home. Yeah. Secret army. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> one. Yeah. I think it's a very coherent narrative. I think it's a strong episode. I think it is one of the best ones of the first series. I just think here and there, it, it struggles. Um, I think it's mainly the prison sequences, which I just think yeah. are a bit odd. But I think that's the nature of a 50-minute story. Certainly in the 70s, I think now you could do it in a, in a different way and it would feel more real and it probably would all be on, it would all be on film anyway and all of, the, all of the things, that the constraints that they were working under. But I think it's, it's a very solid story and the scenes with Gaston and Kessler are just, just outstanding. Everyone, everyone's performances are so good. Did you want to talk about the history behind the Victory V sign that Louise paints on the wall? It's interesting because I wrote about it in my book because I didn't know a lot about it, other than I knew the, the kind of the fact that Winnie, Winston Churchill, would often get it wrong and he would do the, he would flick the V without realising that there was, a, there was a right way round to the V sign. And apparently he regularly did that. My grandma used to do this thing where she, if, if she was like, and there was two of them, and she would always hold her hands up to flip you off. So just <laughs> do like two fingers up as, to illustrate that there was two of something. And now, like, I, she never got it. She never realised what she was doing. What I love about the, the history of the V for Victory sign is that it, it's, a rel- it's relevant here because it was a Belgian who came up with it called um, Victor. 
Victor de Lavallee, who made a BBC radio broadcast in which he said to his countrymen, to his Belgians, to say, you know, make a stand against the occupying Nazis. What you're going to do is try and write this emblem, the letter V, wherever you are, because it's victoire in French and Freiheit in Flemish. So those in occupied countries were being called upon to, to make the V sign because every time the Germans saw that, they would know there was resistance, there was... That you know they weren't a defeated race, they weren't defe- defeated countries, and it was a way of just of making that clear. Yeah. So what he said was the occupier, by seeing the sign always the same, infinitely repeated, will understand that he is surrounded, encircled by the, an immense crowd of citizens, eagerly awaiting his first moment of weakness, watching for his first failure. So that was the idea for the victory V sign, and then I think Churchill really got it got on board, and that's when it was popularized. Um, yeah. The penalties for being caught doing that would have been really harsh. And so when Louise goes out and does that, you're like, oh, love, like, I know you're really upset. You've just lost Gaston. Like, you're in the absolute middle of really intense raw grief. But you're like, no, you don't get caught doing that. Like, were you worried when you saw that? Because I was, I remember when I first watched it and I was like, oh, no, she's going to get caught doing that. And Yeah, absolutely. A slightly related fact, but um, do you know why... BBC broadcasts often started with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. <laughs> da, 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 da. Have I told you this fact before? No. I can't remember. No. It's because that's V in Morse code, and, and it's coincidentally the start of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Oh. That's why they would often play either that song or they would start broadcasts with the da 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 right. Did not know that. It's because it's a V for victory, so... Gosh. Yeah. When I learned that, I was like, oh, yeah, great fact. <laughs> I would love to know what Ryan thinks of this episode. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think this is the most underwhelming um, one we've got so <laughs> far. <laughs> it just, just happened like that. I think it's because he was, he was enjoying the episode, and I think it got to a point where he was like, he suddenly remembered that he had to talk about it, and he was kind of like, oh, it's a shame that I have to talk about it because I just wanted to drink it in sort of thing. So just so you know that that's the background... So let's hear what Ryan thought of Too Near Home. I thought there was way too much in that episode for one episode. It's like there could have been three or four episodes. Yeah. Out of all of that, the timelines were all... like, like Too much happened off screen. So it was very, not confusing, but it was like not given the time that it could have been given or something like that. Lots of death. Any other thoughts? I feel like there should be more contingency plans in place because it felt like everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong in terms of it all kind of hanging on Yvette Mm. or Lisa. Because up until now, she doesn't really feel like she's the linchpin of everything. Mm. But suddenly they're acting like she is. Yeah, so it's, it's just a bit odd. But that was a lot all in one episode, it seems like. Mm. Any performances stand out? I mean, I feel like it was just well acted. Everyone did a good job. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I take it you're done then. Yep. <laughs> okay then, thank you. So I think, I think it's a good point that he makes about how it could have been over several episodes. I think it would have been far better if they'd covered um, Lisa's story in prison over two episodes. And we got to know the prisoners better. We, we realised it was massively high stakes. Maybe by the end of episode, the first episode of this this story... Gaston was still being interrogated. You know, Lifeline were waiting for news. It could easily have been two episodes. And this is why it's good that we have Ryan's opinion, because he brings up stuff which is relevant. Always picks up on things that we don't, which I love. 
What was your moment of the week? Oh, absolutely the scene with the inspector and Lisa uh, outside the garage and him not picking holes in her story and she's trying her best to come up with plausible answers and it's just not quite enough and so well written and that uh sorry i've forgotten the actor's name already but just so well delivered by the actor who played the inspector there yeah gerald james yes yes for me it has to be seeing kessler at his most formidable a reminder of how cruel he is and how intent he is on the nazi cause and not letting gaston call his wife and that chilling line he has we have a journey to make and people to identify um, which was like, oh, wow. Just that chilling aspect as well. Like if, you, if you're in that position, it's that cruelty of making you be there so that the person you're then going on to arrest sees that it's you that's let them down. Yes, and you've betrayed them. Even if you're not intentional betrayal, but you've already been caught or seen together, then it's like, oh, again, it's just very um, sadistic and cruel. Yeah. I would love to know what people on Twitter, because we will never call it X, think about this episode. We heard from the wonderful Alex. Good stuff. Alex is going to join us for Good Fri- the episode Good Friday. So he, he will join us in a few episodes' time. That's the episode that he has picked. If anyone else would like to join us for an episode, do get in touch and let us know. There could be one that really stands out to you or means a lot to you, and it would be great to have contributions. Alex says, The most stressful hour so far, he says, incredibly raw and painful at the end, but it's about two arrests, and what seems like the main one doesn't quite come off for me. The resistance seeming almost to have run out of the prison. The escape, the beret, <laughs> surely burning. Just one file calls attention to it. The one who does get out gets out too easily, which, after Curtis getting away with murder, seems like a misstep. But the other half is a great episode, and the tension is that only one does get out. Thank you, Alex. I think we've echoed a lot of the things you've said, and we agree. So, that was too near home. We're more than halfway through the first series of Secret Army now. That was episode nine. When this episode draws to a close, you'll hear a soundbite from a fan of Secret Army and what they love about the show and their memories of watching it. If you would like to get involved, please get in touch at Secret Army Pod. That's AJ's Twitter handle on Twitter or at secretarmypod at gmail.com. You can also talk to me at World Enough Pod, which is kind of my podcast home on Twitter. We record in advance, but do keep an eye out on social media for our uh, call-outs to share your views on each individual episode. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, five stars preferably. The amount of work that AJ has put into editing these, it's the the least you can do. (laughs) Thank you, yeah. And finding people to guest on the show. Yeah, all of that. Sorting out the interviews, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. And also, it'd be really nice if you could leave us a review. All of things, those things will help other people find the show. And that's what we want. Because we'd like to share the joy that is Secret Army and our love for it. And can you imagine people just going through life not knowing about this podcast and how much better their life could be with it in it? <laughs> Indeed. On that note... See you next time we go down the line when we take a look at episode 10, which is Identity in Doubt. And we have another bonus episode for that story where we're joined by a very special guest. Yeah, fantastic. So until then, I have been Andy. And I have been AJ. Bye. That was beautifully in sync.
Hello, uh, I'm I'm Jem Fell, poet, Twitter tart, and um, sort of yeah. Uh, I I like I like Secret Army, which is why I'm here. I think it was when it was first on, although that was the late seventies when I would have been about eight or nine. So maybe it was a rerun in the early eighties, but in in my head certainly it was when it was first on. It was certainly on television, and it was certainly late seventies, early eighties. Secret Army. It's the title sequence, the music, which I, before I got the DVDs and before I watched it again, I, I downloaded and got that and it was on all my playlists. So we were driving through France and you, you always have the, the title sequence comes on on a playlist at some point. And the, you know, sort of the way it goes over the bridge and you've got those avenues of trees. And, and I've, through, through my teenage years and my going to France and stuff, you seeing an avenue of poplars like that, every single time would get me to start talking to whoever was in the car about Secret Army because that evokes that, those long straight roads with the poplars either side of it, with the music on in the background. That, that for me was the memory that kept it alive all the way through. So whoever created that title sequence deserves that credit for keeping it alive.